Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, I wanted to bring you an update on the story we started to highlight yesterday, and that is the story of Myron Burrell. Uh, let me just go ahead and say Myron Burrell is free. He is free today. Um, for the first time, he's 34 years old. For the first time since he was 16, he is free. Um, if you take the time to go and watch the uh, video footage of um of his police interviews when he was 16 years old by himself um, with a police officer, with an investigator. And you hear him say, you hear the officer say, well, you know, a lot of people have told us it was you. And he says, how could a lot of people tell you something that is not true? Myron Burrell was 16 years old. He was not at the scene. Um, Another man confessed to the crime. And yet, Myron Burrell, 16 years old, was convicted of the murder and sentenced to life in prison. Yesterday, uh, his sentence was commuted. Now, notably, he was not pardoned, but his sentence was commuted. The board acknowledged that justice is not served by putting one child away for life for a crime that he did not commit, even when that other crime is the death of another child. Now, the whole story is heartbreaking on so many levels. And um, and Taisha Edwards deserves justice and her family deserves justice. But justice is not achieved when uh, a child, 16 years old in this case, is put away for life for a crime he did not commit. The whole thing should make us indignant that our criminal justice system here in the United States of America, our system, we the people, did this. And we still do it. And it's going to happen again if we don't make substantive changes. So the criminal justice reform conversation has to be one that proceeds. We have talked about uh, the first step. Um, We need to be striding in the direction of, of genuine justice for all. And so that's a conversation I can guarantee you we're going to pursue in 2021. I want you to ask yourself, Um, regardless of the color of this individual's skin, regardless of whether or not he's male or female, regardless of the circumstances of the home or the neighborhood in which he grew up, am I pro-life? Am I pro-life for every life in all circumstances? And if so, um, how does my pro-life conviction influence the conversation about criminal justice? How does it influence the conversation about Myron Burrell? How does he get back 14 years of his life? How does that get redeemed? How does this situation get redeemed? What if we looked at it differently? Um, Interested in accountability in government? For those of you who continue to at me, who are angry about fraud and corruption in the system, are you angry about this fraud and this corruption and accountability in government at this level? Because this matters. Myron uh, Burrell, I want you to 
put his name in your mind. All right. Uh, all kinds of headlines related to AI this morning. I read one this morning about how AI has taken over the medical clinic. We're going to talk with Jason Thacker. I just describe him as our AI expert. He works with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he's up next. We'll be right back. Jason Thacker serves as the chair of research in technology, uh, ethics, and as the creative director at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's the author of The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence, and the Future of Humanity. We have had him on before to discuss not only um, his book, but uh, other things that are going on in tech. We could have him on right now to tell us um, what are the 10 tech gifts not to buy your kids this Christmas. But we are going to talk about um, a, a, a subject matter that um, uh, that our friend um, Chris Martin punted on on Friday, and that is GPT-3. Jason Thacker, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you doing? I'm good. Chris Chris Martin told us that um, you were the guy to call, that when we ask him about uh, GPT-3 and people on, you know, in my audience are hearing um, like C-3PO and R2-D2, <laughs> right? What is GPT-3 and why should we care? It GPT-3, see, I'll even get messed up saying it myself, um, is an AI system that's incredibly powerful and it's making news. It kind of came out earlier this um, spring around May-ish um, into a lot of hype of kind of ushering in the golden age of AI, a lot of questions surrounding artificial general intelligence for listeners who don't know. Uh, everything that we have in terms of AI is what's called narrow AI, uh, which means it has a narrow task, a very specific task. But there's always been dreams uh, for many, many years of ushering in this kind of age of human level intelligence, teaching our machines to be like humans, to be very thoughtful and uh, to be able to apply this kind of general level intelligence. And so as GPT-3 came out, there's been a lot of hype uh, surrounding about what it can do, what it can't do, um, and kind of seeing this as kind of ushering in this golden age of AI. And honestly, it's an incredibly powerful system. It's kind of fun seeing a lot of people being able to play with it back in May, um, and then a lot of users being able to gain access to OpenAI system uh, to be able to write stories and prose and uh, to engage this system. And it, it's really powerful and really kind of interesting, but it's still a computer system, um, and it's still very rigid in some very in some ways. And so while there's a lot of excitement around it, it also uh, contains a lot of hype. So one of the things you guys can get if you go to jasonthacker.com is a weekly tech uh, update, explainer, roundup. Um, and um, and so if we scrolled back a few weekly tech updates, we would come to the one on GPT-3 um, back in September. Um, but your most recent explainer here on the weekly tech number 74 at jasonthacker.com is what is... Parlay. Am I saying it right? Because it's spelled parlor, but am I saying it correctly? What is parlay and why does it matter? 
It definitely should be parlay. Uh, it means it's the French word to speak. It's a new social media platforms, but I'll be really honest. I'm Southern, so I typically say parlor. <laughs> I'm not really sure uh, which way they want us to say it, um, but it's kind of a merging new uh, social media platform that has a lot of um, people joining it, especially in light of the presidential election, a lot of questions surrounding uh, social media bias or social media content moderation. Um, and Parler is a new platform that promises that it won't filter and it won't censor um, content on its platform, including misinformation or disinformation. Um, and so while it's gaining popularity in some ways, it also has some kind of dangerous aspects that I think users should be aware of. Um, what would those be? Because I think that, right, people are people looking for alternatives, right? Technology and the development of apps um, I mean, we hear people describe apps all the time. We hear people describe like budgeting apps and some of them are free and some of them are not. If an app is free, um, there's probably something that that company is getting by me downloading their app and um, and participating on their platform. So what would you say are some of the things that we need to be aware of when we're using Parler or Parlay or considering an account there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times when uh, surrounding social media, when they have these free services, they're really called uh, freemium services, which means they're premium services being offered to you for cost free. Um, but often you're turning over bits of data or being marketed to with ads. You see that's kind of the uh, base model of Facebook and Twitter are these ad generating kind of uh, business models. And that's how they're able to offer these premium services to us for free because they're able to sell that type of data and prediction uh, to advertisers to be able to put products in our stream to hopefully get us to buy them for Christmas for our loved ones. Um, and that's how they're able to capitalize and make money off of those things. Parler is taking a completely different approach where it's offering kind of a free service, but it's right now it doesn't actually have an ad model. Uh, they promise that they won't be monetizing our data, that they're going to keep our data per, uh, completely private and that they're going to seek to monetize their influencer network, which are large um, people with large followings that are very influential that are on the system. And they're wanting to be able to monetize their streams. And so it's kind of a different way to think about it. Um, but it also has some really concerning aspects in terms of the way that they're saying they're not mo uh, moderating any type of content. They're not going to be filtering things. They're not going to be taking things down, which can lead to a lot of abuse of the system in terms of misinformation or disinformation, fake news. Um, and so it's kind of a wild, wild west right now on Parler. And it's uh, going to be really interesting to see how it plays out over the next year. All right. One of the things that uh, Jason Thacker, uh, one of his fancy titles. Let me get it right. I don't want to give you the wrong title. What your what is it when you when it comes to the technology ethics? What is your what is it, what is your title related to technology ethics? So I don't get it it's wrong. It's chair of research and technology ethics. Okay, that's that's some fancy stuff. Chair of research and in technology ethics. When we come back, I'm going to ask Jason to talk about technology ethics, specifically this year at the intersection of conversations about medical ethics or educational ethics um, or the use of media. Um, and so maybe that is a technology ethics conversation, but we're going to um, we're going to ask Jason to till the soil of his uh, of of the things that he's doing all the time in his research related to ethics in the area of technology. That conversation with Jason Thacker up next.
All right, Jason Thacker is here. You can, um, I'd encourage you to check out his website, jasonthacker.com. One of the hats Jason wears is the chair of research in technology ethics um, at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Jason, when we talk about technology ethics, first of all, can you define that for us? And then maybe in this particular year, what's the intersection been between technology ethics and medical ethics and educational ethics and maybe work ethics. Um, It feels like a year of real intersection with technology. It really does. And it seems like every new day we're having a pretty monumental challenge to our faith and to the way we think about ethics and morality. And that's essentially what I'm tasked with doing at the ERLC is focusing on the intersection of technology and society, technology and the family, technology and individuals, and thinking rightfully and morally about the ways that we as Christians should be using these technologies, stepping in and proclaiming the hope of the gospel. It's often easy in the midst of innovation to fear Uh, to be nervous about what's coming, to think that's challenging our faith in ways that we're not able to respond wisely and biblically. Um, But the reality is is that the gospel doesn't change, and the uh, God and who he is and how he created us in his image doesn't change. And so we can engage these worldviews with confidence, with hope, knowing that God has called us to use these tools wisely in our lives to love him and to love our neighbor. And that's exactly what I try to do in uh, technology ethics is to apply the hope of the gospel, the biblical worldview to a lot of the pressing issues of the day, ranging from social media to medical ethics, uh, to biotechnology, to artificial intelligence, to a lot of the pressing challenges on our faith and be able to respond to give a reason for the hope that's within us. I'm so glad you're in the world. I, I'm just I'm so glad that you are um, that God is using you that He's given you the mind He's given you and the heart He's given you um, because man we need uh, we need help in these areas. Okay, that would be my phone. How embarrassing is that? Uh, sorry about that. Someone from Bismarck, North Dakota, is calling me now. You're going to have to text me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I can read the text line. I can't answer the phone. Um, okay, um, Jason, there would be technology intruding on our conversation. Uh, I follow you on Twitter, so I am aware and have been praying for your family this year. You guys are young. You have a wife who is precious. You guys have two boys. Introduce people to your family. And then um, I, I I just want to tell, tell everybody who's listening, I asked Jason if I could ask him uh, to do this. So um, I recognize that I'm asking him to do something personal, but I know that you want to be praying with me for Jason and his family. So Jason, what's going on? Yeah, we appreciate that a lot. Um, I've been married to my wife, Dory, for about six and a half years, and we have two sons, a four-year-old named Hollis and a two-year-old named Porter, and you'll probably hear them in the background a little bit because it's morning time for them. Um, But one of the big challenges we've been, uh, we always joke that we've been quarantining before it was cool um, because my wife um, was diagnosed last fall, um, just over a year ago, Uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we went through six months of chemo, so she's been kind of locked down. Uh, She actually actually hasn't been in a store um, in over a year now um, because of her chemotherapy, but she finished it up earlier this year, and um, we thought, okay, the Lord has brought us through this really dark season. It's been difficult. Um, Thankfully, I'm able to work from home, especially as COVID got pretty bad in our area. Um, But just about a month ago, uh, she went in for her six-month checkup, which are always kind of nerve-wracking, and they they found that the cancer's back. Um, And it just kind of broke our hearts and really scared us and uh, shook us, um, knowing that the cancer's back. And at this time, there's not as high of a curability rate. 
Um, but she did start chemo just about a month ago um, again. And so it's been kind of an interesting season. But the difference this time is because they have to be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, she is also going to be undergoing a stem cell transplant, uh, which are her own stem cells to kind of reboost her immune system after they give her some really, really difficult chemo in the spring. Um, so we kind of have a long road ahead of us, um, especially with two boys and uh, quarantining because of COVID. It's just been a really, really interesting season. But the Lord's been really kind uh, through people like yourself who have been praying for us and caring for us. And the Lord's been faithful to us, even in the midst of a lot of darkness. Um. Jason, um, first of all, thank you for your transparency. Um, people want to pray, and God's people are faithful to pray, and God is gracious and merciful. And as you have already borne witness to, He's so faithful and kind. Um, let's um, let's spend some time praying for you guys right now. Thank Father, you. I come, I come before you with my brothers and sisters in Christ who are listening across the country and around the world. We come um, before you in the name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, the great physician. We bear Dory up to you. And we ask, Father, that you would um, do a radical healing work in her life at a cellular level. That, Father, you would um, show grace and reveal yourself in and through this process. Um, We lift up Jason as he parents these precious boys and takes care of Dory in the midst of um, full-time work and in a time of isolation where others have a hard time coming in to offer respite and help. Father, it's a lot to bear for this young family, but you are gracious and you are faithful and you are kind, and we bear them up before you. We trust you and we entrust them to you, and we ask, Father, and we promise in advance we will glorify your name. Um, in, in whatever way you choose to show your mercy and heal. But we would ask, Father, healing for Dory in this life, a restoration of her um, as a wife and a mom, um, that she would have a long life here to, um, to do the things that I know are in her heart to do. Grant your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Absolutely, my brother. We'll check in with you again in the new year. Um, have, a, have a blessed and wonderful, although strange, Christmas. <laughs> you as well. All right. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you. Indeed, he will reign forever and ever. Amen. I love I love Handel's Messiah. Um, all right. Jeff Orge is the president of Gateway Seminary. He also has uh, a podcast and a book. Um, I was reading his latest blog posted at the uh, at the seminary website gs.edu. His latest blog is on institutional grief, and I got to tell you, it's absolutely excellent. So I'm going to talk now with um, with Dr. Orge about his book, but I, I don't want you to miss his latest blog at gs.edu. Institutional grief. All right, we'll be right back. This is Max Lucado. Jesus not only did a work for us, he does a work in us. Colossians 1.27 tells us, the mystery in a nutshell is just this, Christ is in you. He commands our hands and feet, requisitions our mind and tongues. As Romans 8.29 declares, he decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. We'll never be sinless, but we will sin less 
And when we do sin, we have this assurance. The grace that saved us also preserves us. We may lose our tempers, our perspective, and our self-control, but we never lose our hope. Scripture promises He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. This is Max Lucado. Joining me today, uh, Jeff Orge. He is, among other things, the author of Shadow Christians, Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. Jeff, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Glad to be with you today. So um, the shadow Christians make up the majority of the Christian population. Let's identify shadow Christians for our listening audience today. Shadow Christians are the believers who work in the shadows. They're the people who work behind the scenes to make churches and ministry organizations functional. They're the people who work in families and in communities uh, almost anonymously and often without any recognition. They're the people who work in the shadows who make such a profound difference in every part of life, really. So if we were to think about um, the characters in the Bible whose names we know, who are recognizable to us, you know, the well-known characters, and even even then there are some of the, you know, we might know one character more well than we know others, but we know, you know, sort of the, the cast surrounding the main character, but there are lots and lots of unnamed people in the Scriptures. Talk a little bit about um, the the shadow Christians in the Bible. Well, this study actually got started for me, which produced the book. When I was reading in Acts chapter 11, this short phrase of Scripture, it said, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene arrived in Antioch and started preaching the gospel. Now, Antioch was the most significant church in the New Testament world. It was the place where the missionary movement started to the Gentiles. It was the place where the doctrine of salvation was, by grace through faith was, was uh, solidified and finalized. It was it was just such a tremendous uh, and significant church. And yet here are the founders and they're not even named. And I remember laying my Bible down and praying out loud, God, th- these men changed the world and, and they couldn't even get their name in the Bible. <laughs> and and that, that caused me to think, well, why not? And that's what started me studying all the people in the New Testament. I delimited to the New Testament, but all the people in the New Testament that I could discover who did consequential things but didn't get their name included. And then I started thinking about why and what they did and what that means for us and how in reality, most believers today are like that. They're people who work in anonymity, unnamed, without a lot of notoriety, and yet they're the ones who do so many significant things in God's kingdom. And I think that ultimately the bottom line of the book is just that. Um, No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing Um, that may feel insignificant in terms of kingdom advancement. If you're doing it in the name of Christ, if you're doing it as a Christian, if you're doing it to the glory of God, um, you are an absolutely essential part of what God is doing in the world today in terms of advancing his kingdom purposes. Um, I love love chapter 12. I mean, I realize, you know, we get, get through the first 11 chapters to get there, but I love chapter 12, staying in the shadows, the first two words, and it's a complete sentence, you matter. Talk directly to those people who are listening right now who think they don't matter 
because they're not an elder, they're not a pastor, they're not recognized as a as a church leader. I want you well, to talk the, to them about about how much they matter. Well, thank you. I'll be glad to do that. The celebrity culture that has arisen even within the Christian community uh, gives many people a spiritual inferiority complex. They think I really don't matter because my name's not up in lights. I'm not on the program. Uh, I'm not the speaker or the singer or the one who gets noticed. And so therefore, what I do doesn't really matter. But the opposite is actually true. The Bible says repeatedly that God values the small thing, the insignificant thing, the thing that no one else notices. And my book is just chock full of illustrations, both from the Bible and from life of people who've done that. But I'll just give a simple illustration. Uh, When you have a typical Sunday worship service, you reach the point of the preaching and the pastor is standing up and he's declaring the word of God. And so for maybe 45 minutes, the entire church attention is riveted on that moment. And it would be easy to think, well, you know, he's the most important person and what he's doing is uh, really a more important than anyone else's contribution. But think about what got him there. Someone had to give the money to build the building where he's standing. Uh, someone contributed the resources to pay the light bill. Someone's running the soundboard. Someone's caring for children in another part of the facility. Someone is on the parking lot providing security. Someone uh, printed the bulletin inserts, which have his sermon notes that people can take home and study in uh, more detail. All of these shadow Christians were vital to make the preaching moment possible. And so perhaps that's the most visible way Sunday by Sunday in churches we see this this put into effect. The person who's in the spotlight, yes, they're important. No question about that. I value leadership and I value it highly. But I've also come to value the hundreds of people who are working in the shadows that make the leader's ministry possible. And my book is trying to say to all of you, you matter. Your contribution matters. And whether you're in the spotlight or not isn't what's significant. What's significant is that you're obeying God, doing what he's asked you to do, what he's gifted you for, and fulfilling your role in his kingdom. And we know all of us do that together. God's kingdom advances. So I love the... um... I love the image of shadow Christians, like the, you know, people who are authentically Christian working out not only their own salvation, but serving Christ in what might be considered considered sort of the shadows of our day. Um, in trying to, uh, my granddaughter saw the book um, lying, on, uh, lying on the counter, you know, opened to a page, and she said, what's that about? And I tried to explain it to her, and she says, oh, so they're see-through. And I said, what? And she said, well, they're the see-through people. And I said, well, tell me about that. And she said, people see through them to Jesus. Wow. I wish We're not in the way. That. Like, right? I We're not in the had, Yeah, I wish your granddaughter had told me that before I wrote the book. I would have put it in the book. <laughs> so I just thought, like, you know, sometimes, right, the wisdom of little children. But she's so right. Part of, part of what makes a shadow Christian a shadow Christian is that they are not getting in the way of people seeing Jesus. Well, that's actually also how I come to the conclusion in the book, and that is there's only one name that really matters, and that's the name of Jesus. And so it doesn't really matter if our name is well-known or if it's pronounced correctly or if it's put in the newspaper or if it's somewhere in publication. What really matters is that people remember the name of Jesus. And so your granddaughter's image is powerful. If people can see through us and see to the person of Jesus Christ, We have stayed in the shadows and done our work well. I think that's a great image she's created for us. Jeff Org and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about shadow Christians making an impact when no one knows your name. We'll be right back. Glory 
Picking up on my conversation with Jeff Org about his new book, Shadow Christians, Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. Jeff, uh, you you shared with me uh, briefly before we came on the air that you have a background in Little League Baseball. So I want to talk about the importance of names, calling children by name, knowing someone's name, the the public credit that people want to get even when they're kids, and how we how we grow up with this sense of if somebody doesn't know my name, I don't matter. That's so true, and it is important to know people's names and to call them out and give them recognition. And the book doesn't really diminish any of that. It's it's important to do that. Uh, but I think what I'm trying to say is that if you're a person who hasn't received that kind of affirmation or who doesn't receive it on a regular basis, you don't have to base your understanding of yourself or your self-worth on what other people say about you or even say about your name. Uh, it's much deeper than that. Your identity comes out of your relationship with God and your service for Him. Uh, not out of what other people do for you. Again, it's important to recognize people. I, I, I try to do it in my daily life, and I certainly try to do it as a leader. But most shadow Christians recognize pretty early on in life that they're not going to probably get the recognition they deserve, and they have to make a decision to keep on serving no matter what happens in terms of how people notice or don't notice what they do for them. There's a really great, um, you know, kingdom theology and and body theology um, in this book. Talk a little bit about um, about that. Well, one of my favorite phrases from the Old King James Bible is in First Corinthians, where it says God values the unseemly parts of the body when He's talking about the church as the body of Christ. And that phrase, unseemly parts, means the unseen, uh, the 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 parts that are imagined to not be too important. Uh, the invisible. And I had a profound experience with this 25 years ago. I was diagnosed with cancer. In the context of my cancer surgeries in my neck area, these little glands called parathyroid were damaged. Now, most people don't even know they have parathyroid. It's not something people talk about very often. It's not commonly a part of any medical diagnosis. But in my case, it was important. Mine were damaged and frankly, never recovered. Well, those parathyroid control your body's absorption of calcium. And so my body has for 25 years not had a natural impulse to absorb calcium. And so every morning I have to take a dose and every night I have to take a dose to keep calcium in my system so that I can, frankly, stay alive. Well, 25 years ago, I'd never heard of parathyroid, but for the past 25 years, I wish I had some. And this is a great illustration of what the Bible's (laughs) talking about. The unseen parts of the body, those things that are even unknown are highly valued in our functionality. And the same is true in the church. That which is unseen or unknown has a very significant role. And so as I've already illustrated from worship services, but I could illustrate in a number of other ways in church ministry, think of all the people who work behind the scenes, changing diapers, driving vans, preparing meals, cleaning up after events, spilling numbers in on spreadsheets, taking care of all the things that have to be done to power up a ministry and keep it moving, All of those shadow Christians, without their vital service, nothing consequential really happens in God's kingdom. And that's the imagery I'm trying to communicate with shadow Christians and also the imagery that comes out of Scripture about what the body's like and how important those unseen parts of the body of Christ really are. So for those of you who are listening, um, one uh, of the hats that Jeff wears is as the president of Gateway Seminary. And um, if you go to gs.edu, you can find um, the Lead On podcast. 
And uh, so if you want to hear Jeff talk really at length about what's in the book, uh, Shadow Christians, uh, he walks through that in a series of the Lead On podcasts. I want to encourage you to check that out. Um, Jeff, recently on the podcast, you also, because it's really a leadership podcast, and um, and you recently talked about questions, um, diagnostic questions that we might ask as we think about the future organizationally, as we think about the future and our congregations of which we are a part, um, and how that might look very, very different in what I will call a post-pandemic era. Um, can we can we tell a little of that soil today as well? Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning the podcast. I do it weekly where I talk about practical issues related to ministry leadership. And the a podcast you're referencing is about diagnostic questions to ask as we're doing future planning and budget planning uh, for post-pandemic ministry. And the questions are simple. The first one is, what have we stopped doing that we don't need to start up again? You know, one of the uh, the second hardest thing to do in a church is start something new, and the hardest thing is to end something that is old or doesn't work any longer. Uh, programs tend to hold on long past their shelf life. And so during the pandemic, we've stopped a lot of things, and I think rather than automatically renewing them, we need to ask hard questions about how they're contributing to our true mission and not bring anything back uh, into our schedules or budgets that really isn't a part of that uh, accomplishing the mission. And then the second question was, what have we started doing that we can't afford to stop? And I think the most obvious example is using technology in fresh ways. Uh, American churches have discovered new ways and important ways to use technology, and I don't see us going back from that. I know many pastors are saying, oh, I can't wait to get back to live worship without video and without internet, and I certainly can't wait to get back to live worship without any distractions myself. But I hope we realize that people have become accustomed to using technology in more effective ways, and we really have to keep doing that. I'll just give one quick example. In my church, we have a Monday night prayer meeting. Now, my church is a little larger. It probably has about 800 on a typical Sunday. But still, on the Monday night prayer meeting, there might be only a dozen or two people that would come on a consistent basis. So during the pandemic, they converted it to a video conference prayer meeting where everyone calls in and then they go into small groups immediately and spend the hour praying. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had 146 people on the call. Wow. And the pastor announced uh, through, through the church, the video prayer, the video conference prayer meeting will never go away, no matter what <laughs> happens after the pandemic, because he's accessing a lot of people who either can't make the commute back to the church on a Monday night or who can't drive in the evenings or who otherwise can't be, uh, be apart from their family or responsibilities, but they can dial in for an hour to pray. And it's changed our prayer strategy of our church. So that's one of the examples of something we've started that we really can't stop. And then quickly, the other two questions are, how has our church culture changed or our ministry culture changed? And how will we preserve the positive and eliminate the negative of that? And finally, how has our community changed? And how will we change how we interface with our community in both positive and maybe even eliminating negative ways? So these are planning tools. We're using them here at the seminary to think about the long-term future of the next two to three years and also about budgeting and strategy planning and personnel allocation. So these kind of questions just help crystallize the planning we need to do as we move past the pandemic and back into different ministry patterns in the future. That is so helpful. It, I think that any time that someone just helps us think about what we're supposed to be thinking about and, and sort of settle down and recognize, um, although it's not ever going to be like it was, it is going to be 
um, the church in the world advancing the gospel. And so figuring out what that looks like, um, not only in whatever the current crisis is, but in the days that are going to follow the current crisis when we're going to settle into whatever our new normal will look like. You know, what did we stop doing that we don't, shouldn't start again? What did we start doing in the midst of all of this that we must absolutely continue? Um, and then these questions about how our ministry culture changed and how our community has changed in the midst of all of this and how best to be responsive to that. I just think that those are four really good questions, and they could be asked in in really any organizational environment. Um, and so I just wanted to uh, highlight that for folks and thank you for it. Again, you can find the resource, which is the Lead On podcast. Uh, Jeff Org is the speaker on the podcast, and he is my guest today. He is the president of Gateway Seminary and the author of Shadow Christians, Making an Impact When No One Knows Your Name. Um, you can find him at gs.edu. That stands for Gateway Seminary. Um, Jeff, what a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. I've enjoyed talking about the book and also always enjoy talking about leadership. So thanks for having me on today. Wonderful. Maybe you, we could circle back around and talk about leadership again. I would be delighted to do that. I'm uh-huh. always ready to talk about that subject. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. We'll be right back. in the ongoing conversation across the country related to worship and attending worship, federal courts in Colorado and New Jersey uh, must now re-examine whether or not state restrictions in, in Colorado and New Jersey, uh, restrictions on indoor religious services violate the U.S. Constitution. So um, that conversation is going on. The Supreme Court on Tuesday in two unsigned orders um, throughout lower court decisions Um, And so both Colorado and New Jersey are going to have to revisit um, the conversation. Neither of those states has restrictions um, that are as, I don't know, what would you call it, uh, burdensome um, as New York. And so uh, in the overturning of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's total ban on indoor services, the Supreme Court um, also then takes action uh, against other states who are restricting worship attendance, uh, certainly those who are restricting it beyond the restrictions that they're placing on other indoor gatherings. So there's a story to watch. I know that uh, some of you live in places where there are businesses that are considering beginning to reopen, even even contrary to state bans against that. And so those are going to be stories that we're going to be watching. Liberty Liberty is a conversation that we have in an ongoing way here on the program, and the freedom of religion is the top of the list, but also freedom of speech and, you know, the freedom to um, pursue uh, a life of flourishing. And so what the Constitution calls happiness, uh, we might call the ability to take care of ourselves and our own as well. And so what does it look like for you to pursue virtue today? The pursuit of virtue is actually what motivated the Puritans right? That's actually what they were pursuing. They were pursuing virtue. So what does it look like today for us to live in the pursuit of virtue, to do so as people who uh, have a great blessing to live in a a nation of freedom, um, but those freedoms are not free. So what are you going to do today to use the freedoms that we have and advance them and protect them 
good conversations for us to be having. Hey, go be shiny. Let your light so shine before others that you become a see-through Christian, a shadow Christian, one through whom others can see God. That comes from the Gospel of Matthew and the words of Jesus, right? Let your light so shine before others that they would see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. So let's get out of the way today. Let's be people who people can see through to God. That's the way we serve as human signposts, not not to ourselves, but to God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Let's be glorifying Jesus Christ today in word and in deed. If you haven't been there already, go spend some time with the Lord in the word of God. Let's be in the word before we get out there into the world that he so loves. Go forth as ambassadors of Christ. Let's go together. Hey, thanks for joining me in this time. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.